says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Now, if you look at the backdrop of this, if you look at chapter 11, this is kind of flowing out of chapter 11. And chapter 11 is uh, the, the hall of faith. You might have heard it said that way. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a chapter that deals with a lot of different people from the Old Testament who ran the race and ran it in the midst of trials and persecutions and, and, and um, a lack of visible evidence. And yet they still had faith in God and they ran anyways. And then at the end, that's where he says, okay, and especially look at Christ. But look at chapter 11 just to kind of show you some of this. So verse 1, for instance, of chapter 11, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the men of old gained approval. Verse 3, by faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. Now, why is that an act of faith? Think about it, right? So nobody was there when God created all things. Nobody was there. We didn't see this invisible God who is spirit create the material universe that we live in. Nobody saw that. We didn't see that. And so we believe this by faith. Now, faith is not blind faith, by the way. There's not a, you know, a lot of times I remember at UTEP, there was this class when we uh, evangelized over there. And some of the students, they would tell us they had this class called From Faith to Reason. As though somehow, you know, you start with faith, but then as you, as you progress, then you actually go to reason. You don't, need, you don't need faith anymore, right? And so they're trying to show, you know, faith is kind of like superficial level. It's kind of like for babies. And then whenever you're mature intellectually, you don't need faith anymore because now you use your reason, you use your intellect. And so that's not at all what the Christian faith is. The Christian faith is not a blind faith religion. We have very much, in fact, look at uh, faith is the assurance, right? We have assurance. It's not faith is something that you hope for without any kind of assurance. No, he says the opposite, right? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Again, he's not saying, hey, you don't, you don't have any conviction, but you just have to have faith anyway. Just close your eyes and kind of just jump into the void, even though you don't have any conviction or any assurance or anything like that, right? Here, the author is saying it's the opposite. We are convicted of things not seen meaning Christ or God. Right now, we don't see Christ, but we know he's at the right hand of the Father. We don't see God because the Father. We don't see God the Father because the God the Father's spirit. Um, but as I've mentioned here before, there's a realm, there's a, there's a, there's a scene behind the, the scene that you see with your eyes and can, can feel with your fingers and smell with your nose and hear with your ears. There's, there's a realm behind all of this that's just as real, and I would say even more real than this realm. And that realm is flooded and is, is endued with all kinds of spiritual realities. Um, but the reason for this is, look at verse 3 now. Of course, that's a, as far as the creation. But look at, okay, so this entire chapter is dealing with people who are running the race in faith. Now, the reason why I'm looking at this as far as New Year's goes. Now, here's the thing about New Year's, right? So we, look, we have 365, well, I guess what, 364 days, I guess, until the next year. Okay, 364 days. So that's a long time. And we all know that we have resolutions and we say, you know, a lot of for you hear a lot about like going to the gym. And I supposedly gyms are always packed like the first week of the year and then they kind of fizzle out and then you get back to normal. And we've all done those things, right? We're like, okay, so new year, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. 
and then it fizzles out and a week from now, maybe a month from now, we're not, we're no longer doing the things that we were resolved to do. Okay. Well, here's the thing as Christians, right? So as Christians, if you look and now there's, there's two, there's two points here. Okay. As far as dealing with this as Christians, as Christians, okay, if I mess up yesterday, which I did, by the way, I was telling Zachary, we're at Zachary's house, and I was resolved to like, you know, really study and work for like eight or 10 hours, and I fall asleep at one o'clock and take like a two hour nap, and uh, and I was, you know, it's like, man, the first day of the year, and I'm already, you know, just, just doing things you don't want to do. The thing is this, though, okay, so you look yesterday as a Christian, you look back on your life yesterday, or let's let's say last year. And you're like, man, I messed up so many times. I sinned in this way. I didn't do what I should have done here. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't finish my Bible plan, my, my reading plan. I didn't, you know, I, I wasn't praying every day. All these things, right? Well, as Christians, in a sense, every day is a day to wake up and say, you know what? Today, although I messed up yesterday, although I didn't run the race properly yesterday, I'm going to start right now and do it again. And even if it's not just yesterday, right? An hour ago, five minutes ago. That's what repentance is. You know, the early fathers used to say that the Christian life is a life of constant repentance all the time. Our minds being changed and developed as we learn more about God and as we become more aware of our own sin and our own pride, our own selfishness and all these things. Right. We're we're continually saying, wow, how far how far I fall short of the glory of God. Now, we know, as we'll look at when we get to chapter 12, that because what Christ has done, we know that as Christians, my my uh, um, my standing with God is not based upon my own righteousness, right? So here's the big difference. So if you had a Roman Catholic, they have no assurance, right? They wake up today and they look back at yesterday and they're like, "Man, I messed up bad yesterday. I've got to go. I've got to go straight to the priest. I got to go straight to the mass or whatever it is and make sure these sins are forgiven." And then they leave mass, right? And they go home and, and lo and behold, they mess up again. And so now they're like, "Okay, now I'm lost again. Now I got to go back." To the, to the mass. That's what Luther was troubled by, right? Because he keeps looking at himself and he's saying, man, I keep, there's, there's so much sin in me that I'm not even aware of. How can I even ask forgiveness for of things I'm not even aware of because I'm so sinful. I'm so selfish. I'm always doing things for me and not God, me and not my neighbor. And when I do things for my neighbor, there's always a little bit of me involved in it. And so he's saying, how can you be right with God if it's up to you, if it's up to your merit, if it's up to your works? So what we're saying here is not that, right? We're not saying that because I had a bad day yesterday, now I'm no longer right with God. I'm saying if I have a bad day yesterday, if I'm truly in the Lord, I'm still right with God right now because Christ has died for all of my sins. But it's saying that as a Christian, I do because of the Holy Spirit. I have a desire to walk according to the faith that I have in Jesus Christ. So if I'm truly born again, what that what my life is going to reflect in a certain degree, right, is the fact that I am truly born again. And that's what this chapter 11 is all about. When you start looking at these guys, so he starts out with Abel. Look at verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. Notice again, this is a chapter about people who had faith, right? Not people who were perfect, not people who were righteous as far as um, they were. They always loved God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength from the time they were born until the time they died. These people stumble, they mess up, they sin. And as we look at some of these guys, you're going to remember some of the sins that they committed. And if you don't remember, I'll help you remember. But here's the thing, okay? Also, when you're looking at the year ahead, now look, look, at, look at Noah, right? So Noah, verse 7. Look at verse 7. By faith, Noah, 
being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. The thing about Noah and the thing about other people here is that when you look into this next year, you know, one of the things that are, is, is very, um, I guess if you think too much about it, it can become quite disconcerting. We don't know if this time next year we'll even be alive. Let's be honest, right? Every single year, there are people who die. We know that. There are people who will have 2022 on their gravestone, on their headstone. And I'm not trying to be sensational or, you know, that's a fact though, right? You're looking in the year ahead and you're saying, am I going to be here a year from now? We have no, we have no way to know. No guarantee. You can be in perfect health. People with perfect health die every single day, don't they? People who are smart, they die every single day. People who are pious, people who go to church every Sunday, they die every single day. We have no guarantee that this time next year we'll even be alive, right? And again, I'm not trying to be sensational. That is the fact. That's the reality. Here's the thing. The reason I'm pointing this out is not just because of our own personal lives, but even when we're talking about, okay, let's say this country, let's say, you know, Christians right now, we are surely aware that they're getting squeezed, especially in the Western parts of the world. They've always been getting squeezed everywhere else. But now in the West, they're also getting squeezed. There's a, uh, there's a minister in Vanguard, um, part of the Presbytery we're part of, who, who owes $750,000 to the Canadian government. He's a pastor because he keeps his church open every Sunday. And he's just racking up the fines every Sunday. And in fact, the reason he's in Vanguard now is because the Presbytery he was a part of got upset because he was keeping his church open. And he's saying, well, we have a command actually in the same chapter, in chapter 10 of Hebrews, that says we are not to forsake the assembling of the saints. We're to gather together, right? And so we have all these things. And in this year, we know how fast things go. We know things where things are headed in a sense, right? We know Hey, six months from now, a year from now, we don't know what this year is going to entail. We don't know what this year is going to hold. So we need certain things, certain foundational truths that we can stand on as we're looking ahead and we're saying, okay, am I going to be alive this time next year? Well, if you're in Christ, who cares, right? And I'm not saying to be reckless or anything. I'm saying if you're in Christ and you're not alive this time next year, that means that you'll be with Christ this time next year. That's a good thing. That's an okay thing, right? So there are these foundational truths. What if, you know, the government, what if New Mexico, whoever, the governor comes out and says, hey, you're not allowed to meet in churches anymore. Well, we're still going to meet in church. We're still going to, we'll be meeting somewhere. This church that we're meeting in actually has been very good. One of the first things he told us when we came in is he was very, the people that, that are before us here in this church, they were very, um, they're very proud of the fact that when all the churches in Clovis shut down, they said we were the only church that stayed open. And I said, yeah, this is the place we want to be. Why? Because we need some kind of solidity. We need some kind of assurance, right? And I'm not talking about assurance of faith here. I'm talking about just as believers. We need certain truths. We need certain realities, certain, tr certain things that we can stand on that helps us as we go throughout this year. Number one is, are you right with Christ? If you're right with Christ, then it doesn't matter what happens to you this year. It doesn't matter what kind of news you get that's bad this year if you're right with Christ. Because he will be with you. He will give you grace, right? Remember when Christ tells the parable about the, the man who built the house on the rock and the man who built the house on the sand. And in both cases, the storm comes against the house. The man who builds his house on the sand, the house crumbles. The man who builds his house on the rock, the, 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 rock, the house holds up. And he says, this is the man who builds his house in Christ, the one who builds his house on the rock, right? The storm is still going to come. We know as Christians, you don't get a free pass. 
If anything, it gets harder, right? Because now you have the devil really coming after you. You have the world coming after you, especially in our country now, especially in our world today. It's not an easy thing to actually, you can say you're a Christian, but to live as a Christian, that's no longer an easy thing. It's not so easy anymore, right? You might have $750,000 worth of fines. You might lose your job. You might go to jail, whatever it is. Okay, so here's the thing, though. When you're looking at all of these people in this chapter, you're having Noah. Think about what Noah does. God goes to Noah and says, Noah, start building an ark. You know, we all know the story. So Noah is out here working on this ark. And I'm sure you've thought about it or heard someone say that he must have looked like a crazy man building an ark in the middle of a desert. Why? Because he says, hey, God told me to build this ark. You got it. You're out of your mind, Noah. In 1 Peter, it says that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. So he's out there actually talking to people about the Lord, but he's building in spite of the fact that the world thinks he's mad, the world thinks he's evil, but what does he have? He has faith, and he continues to do it. He has faith, right? So as this world or as this year progresses, think of Abraham. Think of these guys. Think of Abraham. Okay, Abraham, in a certain sense, this is, in fact, the father of the faith in the New Testament. They always point back, Paul always points back to Abraham as being the father of the faith. Why? Because, first of all, in verse 8, by faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Again, can you imagine? God tells you, hey, pick up and start taking off. Start walking. There's no hotels. There's no cafeterias or McDonald's, just pick up and start walking with your family. He's like, where, well, where do I go? Well, God doesn't tell you yet. You just start walking. You just start going. And here he goes, and it doesn't just stop there. By faith, verse 9, by faith he lived as an alien in the land of promises, in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. And then it talks about in verse 11, Sarah, his wife, she also was someone of faith. So it's not just men here. Um, but go down to verse 17. Actually, go down to verse 15. It says this, And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Here's my question to you. Okay, are you... Do you consider yourself someone who is seeking another country? Not as far as another nation, right? But a heavenly country, a heavenly home, a heavenly dwelling. Because here's what he's saying here. When we start out as Christians, or maybe we've been Christians for a long time, and we're walking this, this walk of faith, right? And then the, the trials start coming on us. Then the toils and the bad news or whatever it is, the, the difficulties at work or at home or with your friends and, you know, the jobs, you know, now you got to figure out, hey, am I going to keep my job? Do I, what do I do, right? Well, here's the thing. What kept these guys going was right here in verse 15, and indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. They did not think about the country from which they left. Remember when Moses and the Israelites break free of Egypt and they're out in the wilderness? They always get into trouble because they're always complaining. They want to go back to Egypt where things were easier. They want to go back to the meat. They want to go back to the veggies. They want to go back where they didn't have to wander around in the desert. And, and, and that is something that we still do. When we start desiring our old life, when we start getting caught up in the things that we used to do, in the ways that we used to walk, 
the passions, the attitudes, the habits, the desires, all those things, right? And what that does is that throws us off course. And we're no longer walking with the same amount of faith and endurance that we were when we had our eyes on Christ, on heaven. That was, if you're, if you're looking for like the secret here, that's their secret. Verse 14 says, for those who say such things, make it clear that they are, not, they are seeking a country of their own. They're seeking a better country, right? Now, that's not to say that you can just, we should as Christians just go live in a cave and kind of just wait for death. Of course not. But it's saying that in the midst of our life, of our work, of our trials, of our family, what everything we're doing, we have our eyes on Christ. And the fact that we're in Christ causes us to live in a certain way, namely by faith. We walk by faith. And I'm saying that because, again, here's the new year. You talk about like a, a perfect way to start out by saying, you know what, I'm going to walk by faith this year and don't just take the long the, the long picture here say you know i'm going to walk by faith this next hour and when you stumble there get up again in an hour and say hey i'm going to walk by faith this next hour and just keep going keep doing it and don't forget that this is done because of what christ has done right this we already have heaven if you're in christ because of what christ has done he was perfect christ was perfect and so think of isaac jacob these are other and i don't want to spend time on all of these figures all these people Look at Moses in verse 23. Here's a great example. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Now, who here does not know what that temptation is like? How tempting is it, especially when you're in some kind of secular environment or you're with you know people, friends, family who are lost, it's very easy to throw in in the in the pleasures that they're throwing in, right? They're, they're, they're doing a certain thing. And you, you know, you might have done those things before. You might dabble in those things now. The point is, is that Moses, when he was in that predicament, he weighed, he counted the cost, and he says, you know what? It is not worth, the pleasures of the world are not worth giving up Christ for. I'm going to throw in with Christ and not the things of this world. Why? Because the world is passing away. The pleasures of this world are passing away. The things of this world are passing away. And if you go down that path, when you start going after the things of the world, that's where you're going to get hit, not just by trials. Those are going to come anyways, but you're going to get hit by things. Not, so, so when the trial comes, it's one thing, right? But as Christians, we're, we have a rock that we stand on, and we say, Christ is with me no matter what. Christ, we're good to go, in a sense. We have this peace that surpasses all understanding. Well, when you start giving that up and you start dabbling in the world and that trial, whatever it comes, it doesn't have to be a trial. It can become those, those temptations, those pleasures. When that comes, guess what? You no longer have the strength anymore. You, you no longer have the desire to go the way you're supposed to go. Moses is one who walked by faith, and yet, was he a sinful person? Was he a sinner? Yeah, he was a sinner. He killed a man. He... Uh, you know, they come back and, and uh, his wife, he doesn't circumcise his children and God comes to kill him. So the wife circumcises the children. Then when they get here, eventually Moses strikes the rock in a way he shouldn't. So he doesn't go to the promised land. So he's not a perfect man. But the point is, why is he in this chapter? Because he was a man who walked by faith. There's a difference. Christians mess up. Christians stumble. But we also walk by faith. We get up and we repent. We keep going. Moses says in verse 26, it says about Moses, he considered the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. And see, that's the question you have to ask, right? Do you consider the reproach of Christ, the reproach of Christ, greater than the treasures of the world? Greater than the treasures of this world? 
Because you do have to choose. I mean, really, every, every one of us, right, when it comes down to it, the question that you're going to be asked when you die is, what did you do with Christ? Were you trying to have both feet in, you know, or one foot on this side of the fence and one foot on that side of the fence? And you forgot that Christ says, you're either for me or against me. Right. He doesn't say, hey, you can straddle the fence. You can kind of play both sides. He says, no, you are either for me or you are against me. And for Moses, he says, you know, I don't care. I mean, think of the pleasures Moses had. Right. I mean, think of the situation he was in. He was the, the, the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He had everything. And Pharaoh was, no, he was probably one of the greatest kings of that time. He had everything at his disposal. It says in another place, he had um, uh, Stephen in Acts 7 talks about how Moses was trained in all the learnings of, e of Egypt. He was, he was a good speaker. He had a lot going for him. And he looked at it and he says, you know what? I would rather roast out in the desert watching sheep because I follow Christ than stay here in Egypt and have everything that Egypt offers me. And so what's he do? He goes in the desert until God calls him back to Egypt, and that's where the plagues happen. Eventually, they break loose and go into the wilderness again. And then it talks about, by faith, how he kept the Passover and things like that. But then go down to verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. You can find out that's basically all from the Old Testament right there. Verse 35, women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection and others experience mockings and scourgings. Anyone here ever experienced mockings because you're in Christ, right? I'm sure that's happened. It's not just, you know, people here, yeah, they're getting tortured and they're getting, look at verse, uh, look at verse 37. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. Let me ask, let me ask you this. If you knew that this year, let's say six, from, six months from now, you were going to be in this category as someone who was sawn in two, who was tempted, put to death with the sword, went about in sheepskins, goatskin, destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. When he writes this letter, some people say it's a sermon. In this sermon right here in chapter 10, look at, look at what happens to what's happening to this people right here. Who this, who this book is written to. Look in chapter 10 of verse 32. Look at, the, look at what they're enduring, the people here. Not just the people in the Old Testament that he's writing about. The people that are, the Hebrew people that, that this, this writer is talking to, verse 32, but remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Right? So how, here's the thing. This chapter is written for people who are in the process of losing their houses because they're in Christ. Right? They're going to prison because they're in Christ. Has that happened to any of us yet? No. Will that happen to any of us? Yes, it will. 
I guarantee it, right? Unless something just, we pray something miraculous happens. I'm saying this because in this coming year, I'm not saying I have like a prophecy or anything weird like that. I'm not saying that. I'm saying just looking, you know, putting doing that and seeing where the wind's blow. And you can tell that a year from now, things are going to look much differently for Christians than they do right now in this country, probably. And so the question is, what do we do in that day? How do we hold up in that day? And if you're like me, you're saying, I don't know if I can do this. I have no idea. I don't know if I can, you know, be, and of course, likely we're not going to be thrown down and someone's going to saw us in two this year, <laughs> maybe five years from now. There was a, uh, there was a pastor I heard about a long, I don't five years ago, and he was an older pastor. He's dead now. But he said, as a pastor, I think he was from Chicago, something like that. He says, I am going to die in my bed. Nice and comfortable. Everything's fine. I'm going to die in my bed. He says, the guy after me is going to die in prison. The minister after me is going to die in prison. And then the guy after him is going to be, you know, in whatever, concentration camp, something like that, right? So he's going to be killed on the spot, okay? And again, this is not to be sensational. I'm not trying to be sensational. I'm, I'm being honest. Even, let's say, even if persecution, trials, afflictions aside, right? It is a fact that we live in what's called a veil of tears. This life is a veil of tears in a sense. Remember what Jacob said? He's old and he stands before Pharaoh. Well, when I say old, he was like 120. And he says, my days have been short and evil. And he's a patriarch. Yeah, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jacob saying, my days have been short and evil. But he's not nihilistic. He's not without hope. He's not without joy. He's not throwing in the towel and saying, life is miserable, I'm out, right? He's saying, no, I walk by faith, but I'm recognizing, I'm aware that this is not my home. So I'm not living as though this is my home. Because when I do start living as though this is my home, then I get more attracted to this place than I do heaven, than I do the things of Christ. That is what these guys are not doing. Again, think about it. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were, how are they doing this? Because they walk by faith. They're saying this life is not worth it. So in the hour that that comes, whatever temptation comes, whatever scourging, you know, persecution, bad news, whatever it is in that hour, will you be able to withstand it? Yeah, you will by God's grace. By God's grace alone, right? Doesn't mean that you have to be impervious and stoical and not feel anything or, you know, um, had a cousin that died, you know, and it's not to say that you go around saying, hey, we don't, you know, you shouldn't grieve, you shouldn't be sad. Of course not. Of course. God has made us to grieve. That's, that's perfectly natural. That's normal. But it's saying, what does Paul say? We don't grieve as the world grieves. We don't live as the world lives. We don't, we don't get bad news like the world gets bad news. We don't go through these trials like the world goes through them. Why? Because the King of kings and Lord of lords is for us. Therefore, who can be against us? Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. God will repay. Even if we don't see it in this life, God is going to repay. And so all of these guys, all and, and women too, they're out here and they're Look in verse 38, he says, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground, and all these having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us they would not be made perfect. He's talking especially about the gospel coming. And that's when he gets into chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. I want to say 
Just a few quick things on this. But number one, this cloud of witnesses, what he's picturing here is like an arena. And I think for us, it would be more like a stadium. And you have a lot of people in the stadium. The people in the stadium are cheering the person who's running the race. And who's in the stands cheering the guy who's running the race? Well, these cloud, the cloud of witnesses, the people have gone before us. Moses, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, your loved ones who are in Christ, you know, the saints of old, Augustine, Athanasius, all these guys, you know, Calvin, Luther, they've run the race. They've, they fought the good fight of faith. And now it's our turn to run the race. And we're on the stage. We only have, I mean, how many years? I mean, at best, I don't know, 90, right? At best. You have 90 years on this earth. 90 years. What are you living for? Because if you're living for anything other than Christ, when that 90 years is up, and that's a gracious number, then everything you just live for is a waste because it's over. It's all gone. But if you're living for Christ for those 90 years, or let's say, you know, today you're like, man, I'm 30 or 40, 50, whatever, and I have never lived for Christ. If you live for Christ the rest of your life from this point forward, guess what? Your life is not in vain. The race has not been run in vain. Because you're living for the only thing worth living for. The only thing that lasts. Nothing else lasts in this world. And that's what he's saying here. We have a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Why is that important? Because we could look to them and say, we are encouraged by the way they ran the race. We're encouraged that they were men like us, and yet they kept going. When they were in situations overwhelmingly unbearable. They kept fighting. They kept going. They kept doing it. When they were astonished and couldn't even think right because of the things in their lives, right? They said, you know what? I'm going to cling to Christ. Even if I have nothing else, I'm just going to cling to Christ even if I can't. You know, at times the Puritans would talk about how you, there are seasons even in Christians' lives when it seems like, where's God? You know, there's the presence of God is, is, is just, we, we're, not, we're not in tune with that. We're not sensitive to that. And the Puritan says that, that's why they call it the valley, the valley of vision. That's where you keep running anyways. That is the trial of faith right there. I'll have faith even if I don't, even if there is, you know, it's like this. Even if I knew I was going to go to hell, would you still not live for God because he's worth it? I don't, I mean, think, do you live for God just because you're going to heaven? That's it certainly helps, right? But let's say you weren't going to heaven. Would you still live for God, love God? Glorify God, enjoy God. You know, the, the call to worship today out of Revelation, they say, worthy are you because you created all things, because you're good, you're holy, you're righteous, life comes from you. So it doesn't matter what I get out of God. It doesn't matter if God gives me all good things or if he gives me heaven. He's worthy to be glorified, to be lived for anyways. Now, when they're talking about this, look at this. Let us also lay aside every encumbrance. Your translation might say weight. And the sin which so easily entangles us. So he says, lay aside two things, right? Every weight and the sin which so easily entangles us. Those are different things. Now, the sin are the things in your life that, yeah, throw those away, right? Why? Because they're weighing you down. They're not letting you run as you should run. They're not letting you go and, and, and look at Christ as you ought to look. So we know sin. Yeah, get, get rid of those things. But notice he also uses the word weight. Weight are things that are not necessarily sinful. But they're keeping you from the things of God. They're, th they're keeping you from the things of Christ. 
Now, I'm not talking about your family or your wife or things like that, because those are I like the uh, the reformers because, you know, the reformers, when they came out of Roman Catholicism, where being celibate and being a priest was the highest spiritual thing you could be. The Protestant reformers, Calvin and Luther and those guys, they were saying, no, if you're going to be a Protestant minister, you need to go get married. Because it's like Luther said, he learned more in one year of marriage than he did in a, a lifetime in a monastery as far as sanctification and learning how to be selfless and things like that. So that's a really good training ground to be like Christ just in that context, you know, being around other people, things like that. But the point is, is I get, like two nights ago, I was I I was uh, really just kind of thinking back and forth, you know, and it, is, it was probably like 10 o'clock. But I was like, you know, I could I can either study, read scripture or you know, like watch a documentary or something, you know, and it's like, oh, you know, I, it sounds really pleasurable. And I'm not against, I'm not saying you can't I'm, watch documentaries, right? But what I'm saying is that, you know, in your own conscience, what God is calling you to do and what you should not do, right? You know the difference. And so for me, that was one of those times where it's like, all right, man. And not only that, so, you know, when, you know, when documentaries or things like that could become weights and maybe even simple is when that's all you're doing, Right. You're like, hey, um, I'm not going to spend time with my family because I'm going to go, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm binge watching some Netflix thing, you know, and I just I don't have any time. That's when that thing becomes a weight. Right. So whatever it is, the point is, is, you know, those things in your life that are weights and that are simple. And especially as we look ahead towards the new year, those would be great things to get rid of and to fight the good fight. And don't quit, man. If you you know, if you stumble a few times, don't stop. Come January 5th, you're like, oh, this is too hard. I can't do it. No, keep going. Keep doing it. Keep trying. Don't, don't give up and keep. Look what he says right here. The whole point of all of this, he says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Okay, notice it's set before us. God in his providence has set a certain path for you. And he set another one for me. Every one of us has a different path that we're on that Christ has laid down. That God in his providence and his sovereignty is laid down. He knows what you can go through. He knows what's going to help you. Whether they're trials, difficulties, whatever they are. He knows what you need in your life. Encouragement, blessing, right? He knows. So he has a path for you that looks different than the path that he has for me. But all of us are on the paths that Christ has set forth. That's the main thing. And then he says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, the greatest example. So you have Moses, you have Abraham, you have all these guys who endured conflict, who endured pain. But the ultimate, the ultimate example is Jesus Christ, who looked it in the face, who looked conflict, who looked death, who looked the absence of God, who looked the judgment of God in the face. And he says, I'm going to do it anyways, because I love God and I love the people I'm going to die for. And so he goes to the cross, despising the shame. He goes to the cross and he is bruised he's crushed he's tormented he's destroyed in a sense by his father because he was bearing our sins and it was the only way that our sins could be forgiven is if someone pays for those sins there's never been anyone who has suffered more than jesus christ that's why he is the ultimate example whatever you go through in your life whatever i go through in my life even being sawn in two being tormented or tortured that is nothing compared to the pain and the sufferings that Christ himself went through. So in those moments, that's why he says, look to Christ especially. And he will give you the strength. He is the example for how to run this race in the right way. We have a long race ahead of us. We do. 
you know, this life, this country is collapsing. I'm not trying to sound, you know, everyone knows, right? I mean, who's, who didn't know that? Okay. The question is, how are we going to respond as Christians? We're going to respond as people who are victorious respond. First of all, we're not going to bend the knee. We're going to, if, if we get kicked out of this church, you know, we won't, but you know, if the, we will be worshiping the Lord. I was thinking this morning, bubonic plague, if that thing, if the bubonic, blue, bubonic, <laughs> you guys know, right? The bubonic plague, right? I mean, even something like that, wouldn't it be good to say, hey, if, you know, <laughs> we got to still be worshiping the Lord somewhere. The people who are still alive, the people who can make it, man, show up. Let's worship God because this life is going to end anyways, right? So whatever it is now, I might be dramatic here. Maybe it's not so, maybe it won't be that bad a year from now. I guess we check, check the tape, you know, a year from now, see. But the reality is, is this, this year is going to be filled with, with, with trials and temptations every single day in our own lives, temptations. And usually they're small, right? But a lot of small temptations can throw us off. So the point is, as we get ready to come to the Lord's table, this I wanted this message to kind of fit into the Lord's Supper um, because this is a great way to trust in Christ. The Lord's table is about what Christ has done for us in the new covenant. And so let's start out the year in the right way, on the right footing, by saying, Christ, I'm going to trust in you no matter what comes my way this year and no matter how many times I mess it up because Christ was victorious and he was successful. And so now let's just run out of gratitude for him because he's worthy. He's worthy. Okay, let's pray and then we'll come to the Lord's table. Father, we pray for your help. We pray for your strength. We know, Lord, and in a sense, we don't know how weak we are how prone we are to fall into temptation, how prone we are to, to fall into the things of this world. And so, Father, we pray that you would strengthen us this year, that you would give us grace to run the, the race of faith, to keep our eyes on Christ, to keep our eyes on the, the men that you've strengthened and the women that you've strengthened throughout church history. Even back in the Old Testament, Lord, these, these people have gone before us and who have suffered horrendously for the things of you. Lord, even if we're not suffering in that way, we know we suffer through trials, through through temptation, through the flesh, through the world, through the devil coming and, and attacking us in so many ways, Lord. So strengthen us. Give us help now. Give us help as we come to your table today, Lord, to, to be strengthened by the things that Christ has done for us. Lord, be with your people here. Save those who are not your people here. Have mercy on, on this church. Have mercy on us, Lord that we would honor you, that we would glorify you, that whatever comes our way, we know that you're good. We know that your mercies are new every morning. We know that you're worthy to be praised because you created all things. And so we come to you now. We say thank you. We pray for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you turn to Matthew 26, as we come to the Lord's table, this is uh, this is Christ. The 